If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 143 of the Leading Learning Podcast, where we talk with Dr. Ryan Baker, Associate Professor at the University of Pennsylvania and Director of the Penn Center for Learning Analytics and an expert in educational data mining. But before the conversation with Ryan, we want to offer a message from our sponsor for the third quarter of 2018, Next Thought. Next Thought is your partner in learning management system technology, creating engaging experiences, increasing learning potential, participant satisfaction, and member retention. Empowering learning businesses like yours with the perfect combination of art, science, and technology of online learning. Next Thought helps you achieve your education goals. Next Thought goes above and beyond the standard learning management system by offering comprehensive solutions, including a modern, elegant technology platform, an evidence-based learning design methodology, and professional video production services. Contact Kevin.Stewart at nextthought.com or visit nextthought.com to learn more. Definitely do visit Next Thought. It's sponsors like them that help to make this podcast happen. But now, back to the focus of this particular episode. Salisa, can you give us a preview of what you and Ryan talk about? Well, educational data mining and learning analytics fall into Ryan's areas of interest and expertise, and so we spend a good amount of time on those, talking first about the distinction between the two, because there is one, even if it's subtle. Uh, We also talk about massive open online courses. Ryan has himself taught a MOOC multiple times, and he's experimented with integrating intelligent tutoring systems with the MOOC to really get at personalization at, at scale. He's also doing some interesting work around learner disengagement and gaming the system when it comes to online learning. And with all of what we touch on, we really try to remain practical, even for folks who may not have access to tons of data and resources. Ryan offers some thoughts uh, on practical takeaways around uh, his work and his research. Well, I do believe that uh, you know across the broader learning business, if there's one area that is still just not been tapped to its full potential or even to its partial potential at this point. It is educational data data mining and learning analytics. So much more needs to be done in these areas. So I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Let's go ahead and roll this interview with Dr. Ryan Baker. I'm Salisa Steele. This is the Leading Learning Podcast, and today I'm joined by Dr. Ryan Baker. Ryan is an associate professor at the University of Pennsylvania and director of the Penn Center for Learning Analytics. Ryan's published scores of academic papers and articles in his areas of interest and expertise, which include educational data mining, learning analytics, and massive open online courses. In fact, Ryan has taught the Big Data and Education MOOC multiple times. Ryan, welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. And and so to start things off, I want to give you a chance to say more about yourself and your work since I just obviously scratched the surface with those few sentences. What would you add about your background, your interest, and or the the Penn Center for Learning Analytics? Sure. So what I would add is that in those areas you mentioned, and we've worked in a few others like simulation and games as well, what we're most concerned about is trying to figure out what's going on now in a student's learning or engagement or emotion 
that's predictive of where they're going to end up in the future. So our goal is really to kind of take what's happening today, figure out more about it than was easy to figure out um, a decade ago, and then look into the future, figure out where the student is going and what we can possibly do today to help them have a better outcome tomorrow. Mm, And so uh, that seems to fit very closely with obviously the work uh, that you're doing with educational data mining and learning analytics. And one of the things I wanted to have you do here at the start is that those two areas are related but different. And so would you briefly explain kind of the key differences and similarities between educational data mining and learning analytics? Well, to be honest, I think that the similarities between those two areas are more important than the differences. They came out of different kind of crowds of people. Um, I think that the educational data mining community which started a little bit earlier, came out of people very interested in some of these themes in K-12 and in kind of looking at scientific discovery and promoting scientific discovery. And the learning analytics crowd came out more from higher ed and more of a uh, idea of supporting the practice by various people by informing them. Um, There are a few differences. I think to this day, EDM is a little more focused on automated intervention and adaptive systems and learning analytics is a little more focused on informing instructors and and uh, you know coaches and various other folks on how to better support learners. But broadly, I think they're both concerned with key themes of uh, what we can take from the increasingly large data available about learners and learning and use it to make a difference in some fashion. Well, so then this idea that we have this data that we can make use of, um, you know, so what do you see as the most exciting potential for educational data mining and learning analytics? And, and maybe, too, once you talk about kind of the, the exciting potential, maybe on the flip side, where do you have reservations or concerns about how um, those, those might be used or, or how they are being used? That's a big question. I mean, I think there's a lot of areas of potential. And that's been what's been kind of exciting. <clears throat> what's been exciting to watch in the space is watch over the last five years as adaptive learning has become more and more widespread, as instructors and various folks at universities have reports about which students are at risk and why, um, as you know, K-12 guidance counselors, teachers, administrators have reports about which students are at risk, and we really start to see these things scale up. You know, these days, for example, most K-12 students are in a school. I don't know if it's actually most, but a surprisingly large proportion of K-12 students are in schools that are using predictive analytics to try to figure out which kids are at risk and why. <clears throat> now, I think that the, uh, that the really big challenge there, and I think that success comes with its challenge right away, because these are things where you can, you, you can use the data really effectively or you can use it really poorly. And the quality of the models that we're seeing, the quality of the algorithms, really is quite variant. You know, you have some adaptive learning providers who are really at the state of the art, and you have others who are way behind it and who are delivering a quality of education that maybe no better than what we could have had before these kind of technologies. Similarly, you know, while some school districts are using very sophisticated models to make assessment of their learners, there are other ones who are using very simplistic models that probably aren't very actionable and may even be misleading. So I think the key is that there's a ton of promise in this data, but we've got to really question are the algorithms good and what's our basis for believing that? Mm-hmm. And until we can really get to a point where everybody out there is at that level of quality, we won't be able to know that we're really reaching our full potential as an area. 
Hmm. So it sounds like you're, you're pretty bullish overall on the potential for education data mining and learning analytics and that really your major reservation is just is the quality of the educational data mining and the learning analytics that are being applied and making sure that, that really how it's being used is, uh, is appropriate to the situation and is giving it sort of that full picture of the learner of the student. And, um, and so, uh, one of the other areas that I know you talk about, and I find this really interesting because I hear a lot about learner engagement, but I know that part of what you've looked at is disengagement. And, you know, it's funny, I don't hear about that quite as much, but it's so obviously the, the companion to learner engagement. Um, how do you define or describe disengagement? And what have you learned about it in your research and your work? Well, you know, there's a saying that all happy families are alike and all unhappy families are different. And I certainly think that's true of disengagement. There are so many ways <clears throat> that a learner can become disengaged, um, and they have very different implications. And part of what I think we need to do is not entirely even think of disengagement as entirely a problem, not think of engagement as entirely good, but think of how is a student engaging. And one example I would give you is take two strategies that a, a child who's using adaptive learning software in class or as homework might take. One child might say, I'm going to keep working through the material, but I'm going to try to get through with as little effort as possible, just kind of guessing and, you know, misusing the hints and kind of just try to get through. That strategy is called gaming the system. Another student might, like, take a break, turn to their neighbor, chat for a minute. A lot of our teaching practice, a lot of our pedagogical practice focuses on trying to reduce off-task behavior. But in fact, there's some evidence that a little bit of a, a break, taking a break occasionally, can be good for students' overall engagement. Adults need breaks. Kids need breaks. By contrast, gaming a system, which is much more often ignored, much more subtle, disengaged behavior, a student who games the system in middle school math is less likely to go to us, uh, less likely to go to college years later, and they're less likely to major in a STEM career, a math and science career, years after this gaming behavior in middle school. And so how do you begin to sort of tease out the, those different flavors of, of disengagement? You know, when you're talking about sort of the, the off-task behavior, and sometimes it's truly kind of someone disengaging, trying to game the system, trying to kind of get around it and just, you know, satisfy whatever requirement they have to to be able to do something else versus people who are using that off-task behavior as a way to sort of, uh, you know, reset, come back fresh, ready to, to learn more. How, how do you begin to study that? That's a, that's a great question. I mean, as far as detecting things like gaming a system, we're able to do it from system logs. As far as we can detect off-task behavior from system logs as well, but I think that really telling what a student is doing off-task beyond just the duration will probably be something that we'll need to kind of bring a human being into the loop. Where, um, you know, be the student's teacher, for example. <clears throat> Eventually, you could imagine using sensors, uh, physical sensors, like cameras to do that. But I think actually there's a lot of concern at a national level about wiring up our students with physical mm -hmm. sensors or putting cameras in classrooms. So my take on that would be if we've got a student who's going off task a lot, you know, let's get their guidance counsel, let's get their teacher involved in thinking about what it means. But let's try to also communicate to teachers that a little bit of off task behavior here and there isn't actually that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like the, it's the blending of, of the human and the, the, the teacher with the, the data that we're getting from the system, from the technology, and then using that uh, specifically within the context of individual learners and students to understand kind of how they're using different behaviors. 
That's a great way to say it, and I couldn't agree more. You know, um, I think that there's an increasing awareness in the learning analytics and educational data mining community that it's not all about just the fanciest, completely automated algorithms, but about taking what human beings are good at and taking what computers are good at and trying to leverage both. And I think that actually is kind of one of the core messages that the learning analytics community brought to the table when they when they came out and kind of said, hey, we need to empower human beings rather than just doing everything in an automated fashion. Mm-hmm. So. I think the role of the teacher, the role of the guidance counselor, the role of the instructional coach, the role of the curriculum developer is so important. Well, and this kind of uh, fits in perhaps with, with another area I wanted to talk about, which is intelligent tutoring systems, because I know that's another area that, that you focus on in, in your work. And um, so maybe you can just um, first tell us a little bit about kind of how you define or, or what fits into intelligent tutoring systems, like what that category entails. And then kind of what you see is the application of intelligent tutoring systems sort of outside of the academic setting, potentially in lifelong learning. Well, intelligent tutoring systems have been around for a long time um, in one way or another. And the original idea was to build a computer that behaved like an expert human tutor based on some evidence from the 80s from Ben Bloom and others that expert human tutors are really good. Um, Increasingly, we've realized that the strengths of an expert human tutor and the strengths of a computer are not the same. And we don't necessarily want to emulate an expert human tutor as much as create the most sensitive, positive environment we can. But what I would say is an intelligent tutoring system is continually trying to figure out what a student is struggling with, where they need support, and what kind of support they need as a student works through various kinds of material. Um, Some intelligent tutoring systems involve text dialogue, like verbal kind of communication, and some just involve problem solving with ongoing support. But what they share in common, at least any good intelligent tuning system, is a model of where the student is that's multidimensional, that captures more than just what are they able to get correct right now, and um, some pedagogical practice that's built around that that's automatically adaptive. Um, As far as it goes for lifelong learning, I actually think that um, there's been a lot more work on this in higher ed and K-12 than there has been in the lifelong space. But for example, my MOOC... Uh, with uh, generous support from the U.S. Army, is actually trying to build intelligent tutoring support into our MOOC. So, for example, if we see that a student is struggling with an exercise, we take them back to where in the video they can get the content they need to help them figure out how to move forward. Um, Very simple things like that can make a big step towards intelligent tutoring. I also uh, would give a shout-out to various folks who have been thinking about connecting up different learning opportunities because ultimately a true intelligent tutor in the long term will be something that doesn't just have one curriculum or one material, but actually takes what it learns about students and carries it on uh, throughout their curriculum and learning experience. Mm, that's interesting. So not necessarily tied to kind of a specific course or learning experience, but something that can sort of uh, uh, be informed about what that learner is doing a- across uh, the spectrum of, of different learning activities. Is that what you were saying? Exactly. I think that that's um, that's a really exciting opportunity. Yeah, and so y- you mentioned that you're making use of intelligent tutoring systems in the context of a MOOC, and and I think that I've um, seen you refer to that, you know, as as like that this may be kind of uh, p- perhaps how we deal with sort of personalized learning at scale. I mean, is is that 
part of where you sort of see this going is that you you know you have this MOOC where you're you know we're talking massive large student bodies large groups of learners but then if you can layer in that intelligent tutoring system that's then where we can begin to address some of the the need for personalization for those individual learners but still at at scale well and ultimately i think that it's people call these things personalized learning they call it adaptive learning they call it uh intelligent tutoring systems but it's really all the same thing. I mean, <clears throat> it's a common set of techniques. I don't, I don't know that there's even a distinction between those terms. Mm. Ultimately, it's just an idea of let's try to take, uh, let's try to take a system that can uh, that can figure out what the differences between students are that matter for their needs, figure out their needs, and provide something different to them. Mm. And that technology, it's a lost opportunity that we're not seeing it within massive online open courses yet. Mm. Well, great. It's good then that you're you're able to start doing some of that work and, and pioneering there so that we can hopefully see more application of that. Um, so for our listeners who are leaders and aspiring leaders working in lifelong learning, and a lot of these folks don't necessarily have access to, to tons of, of data or tons of, of resources, I'm wondering when you have sort of smaller teams, smaller resources, maybe smaller data sets that you have access to, what do you see as some of the main practical takeaways around learning analytics, educational data mining, intelligent tutoring systems, uh, kind of your work in general? You know, what should uh, leaders and aspiring leaders in lifelong learning be considering or doing in those areas? Well, I mean, I don't expect every leader to be developing their own intelligent tutor. But what I would say is, <clears throat> that it's really valuable to be considering how you can build in the best technology that's out there. There are a lot of really good systems out there for a lot of different topics. And these kind of technologies are expanding beyond just, you know, the kind of core domain that they started in like mathematics and things like, you know, remedial calculus to a much broader range of topics. So if you can bring in a system like this, or for that matter, a predictive analytics system, do so. But try to make sure that what you're getting is good because there's a lot of snake oil out there uh, in the midst of some very good technology as well. Mm. So do you have any um, tips or suggestions for, for how people begin to sort of tease out those, those good quality um, systems and technologies that you're mentioning versus the snake oil that you mentioned? I think one of the key aspects is that systems that are good typically have some trail record of publication, of solid peer-reviewed evidence behind their effectiveness. Now, maybe when the system is just starting out, it won't. But that's the sort of thing that gets amassed fairly quickly. And, you know, a lot of the people who are developing good technology, they're putting it out to the world to be kind of checked, to be commented on. So I would say the presence of peer-reviewed publications in respective venues is a key indicator. Uh, I also think that among the systems that don't do that, not every vendor does that, there's a different there's different kinds of argumentation. Um, if... if uh, if the kind of argumentation that you're seeing is based on kind of technical arguments that are detailed, that's probably a much better sign than vague arguments about, for example, one of the schools in near where I live uses a system which uh, has on its webpage that the system works by, ma- by making your brain synapses grow hmm. and that the power of making your brain synapses grow makes students learn better from their adaptive learning system than other systems. And I don't know how... One adaptive learning system makes your brain synapses grow better than another. So mm-hmm. that's the sort of thing that should make one suspicious when you see vague and grandiose claims. Gotcha. Okay, great. Thank you. And, you know, so 
maybe if we, uh, you know, pick up a little bit and, you know, just if you take a broad um, perspective on kind of what's going on in the learning world and, and what's on the horizon for learning, are there any big developments or changes that you think we'll see in learning in the coming years or that you hope we'll see? I think that aside from the growth towards greater adaptivity and personalization, the capacity to produce learning experiences that are richer and more experiential in various ways is a really powerful aspect of the upcoming generation of learning technologies. So rather than just watching a video, reading a text, and then taking a quiz, people are engaging in complex problem solving. They're using rich simulations. They're doing engaging in virtual reality or augmented reality. I think those kind of developments will enable people to learn things that they can connect much clearer to the context they care about. And one of the examples I'd give is in foreign language learning. You know, are people learning foreign language through participation in uh, first-person interactions where they uh, talk to simulated members of the target culture that they're learning the language of? Or are they learning from kind of virtual flashcards and, uh, tr- and translation tasks? Those are very different kinds of uh, pedagogies, and one of them links much closer to the kind of context most people want to use the language in. Mm, that's great. And that's uh, one that strikes home for me because I've definitely been, uh, I, I studied um, French as an undergrad and in graduate school. And then I've uh, recently been trying to uh, bone up on some Italian before a trip. And it's just amazing to me, the range of tools that are out there now that really can help you simulate uh, that experience of being in the foreign country and putting you in those typical situations. So, you know, as we're beginning to wrap up, uh, the next to last question, this is one that we ask everyone who comes on the Leading Learning Podcast, and it focuses on your personal learning specifically. What is one of the most powerful learning experiences that you've been involved in as an adult since finishing your formal education? That's a really interesting question. I guess one of the signal ones I've been learning is I'm, I'm such a fan of these technologies And when I went to learn Korean, which is uh, my current learning project, learning Korean, I said, which of the tools out there can really, you know, be the right tool? And as I got into it, I discovered that none of the tools out there by themselves had the flexibility I wanted for, for the learning project I had. None of them had the kind of customizability and the kind of comprehensiveness of the learning interactions I wanted. So I ended up kind of cobbling together a solution from multiple things, and I ended up not actually using any adaptive learning tool. And while that's in part because I have the kind of sophistication and knowledge to personally run kind of memory algorithms by hand um, and to build tools I need, I found it surprising how incomplete solutions are. And I think that people get into the space of having one way to teach something, and that's the only way they teach it because it's much more economically feasible to do it that way. But I think the, the real future of learning is going to be in creating these learning interactions that provide a comprehensive way to learn things where you learn it in multiple ways. And I think that's a step that we still need to go forward. And I guess I really learned that from engaging in that personal learning project. Mm. So it's, uh, yes, uh, an example of something that you learned, which was uh, focusing on on Korean, but what you really learned was the fact that there's still sort of these gaps out there and that there's still more work to be done in creating more comprehensive learning experiences, which I think definitely resonates with me in my own experience. 
So the last question, just as if, if listeners would, would like to know more about you and your work, where, where should they go? How could they potentially connect with you or find out more? Well, uh, I guess what I would say is my webpage, uh, Google Ryan Baker, I am not the Miami Dolphins linebacker, um, <laughs> has a range of publications. It has basically all of our publications up there, and it's a place to look. Um, you could also follow our Twitter feed, Baker EDM Lab, which is a low-traffic Twitter feed where we post all of our latest scientific results. Um, on that page, there's a couple of review articles that might give a big picture. Um, so particularly for your audience, they might be interested in an, ar- in an article I wrote two years ago, Using Learning Analytics and Personalized Learning which was on the handbook on personalized learning for states, districts, and schools. And if somebody was to to go to my publications page and search for the word handbook, they would find that one. It's about the fifth or sixth with that name. Great. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Ryan. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. It was good to meet you as well. And I hope that everyone out there listening to this finds it interesting. That wraps up our interview with Dr. Ryan Baker. To get show notes for this episode, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 143. The show notes include a link to the article that Ryan mentioned in his final response. When you check out the show notes, you're going to see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you're getting value out of what you hear, we would be truly grateful if you would subscribe as it helps us get some data on the impact of what we're doing. We'd also be grateful if you take just a minute to give us a rating on iTunes. Just go to leadinglearning.com slash iTunes. That'll put you in the right place. And Salise and I personally appreciate your rating and review, but more importantly, those reviews and ratings play a really important role in helping the podcast pop up whenever would-be listeners are searching for content on learning and leading. So consider leaving a rating and review for the Leading Learning Podcast as, well, one of your kind acts of the day. And we'd be grateful if you would visit our sponsor for this quarter. So take time to check out nextthought.com. Jeff and I put a lot of time and energy into the Leading Learning Podcast. And one of the key reasons we're able to do that is because of the support of sponsors like Next Thought. So again, please visit nextthought.com. Finally, consider telling others about the podcast. Shout it out on Facebook, on LinkedIn. You can automatically send out a tweet just by going to leadinglearning.com slash share, or just walk down the hall, pop your head into somebody's office and say, hey, listen to Leading Learning. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.